This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is the fifth of uh, six seminars on Hebrews, and I believe of the six, it's the most important. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the message of the book of Hebrews and for Jesus, our high priest, interceding for us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, heaven will draw very near during this time. Thank you for the, uh, the ladder that stretches from earth to heaven that Jesus established. May our prayers reach right into your presence. And may our words and thoughts be acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe I will just briefly review the first four because we had a long and profitable day yesterday. Um, but very briefly, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 speaks of the fact that were Jesus not fully God and fully human, he could not have saved us by his death on the cross. Only one who is really fully God, which our pioneer, early pioneers, some of them had a hard time really accepting, um, and fully man, which some now Adventists have a hard time really accepting, only really by those two very impossible truths that are put together in the mystery of godliness, as Paul describes it, could save us really on the cross. Nothing short of it, nothing less. Uh, seminar number two, we looked at the experience of Israel and why the Sabbath is so important. They, they couldn't enter into the promised land because they did not keep the Sabbath in the way it was meant to be kept. Actually, uh, it didn't reach their hearts. Their hearts were hardened through unbelief. And um, I believe the same uh, is true today. We're told that Jesus could have come ere this, and yet he did not, has not. And um, it's not any delay on his part. I believe the same problem exists today. We're, we're following the same path Israel followed of unbelief, hardness of heart, and the message of the Sabbath, proclaiming it more fully, includes uh, receiving it fully with our hearts and being really resting in the work Jesus does for us, has done on the cross, does for us today, not only in heaven, but here in our hearts and our lives. It affects us today. The third seminar uh, dealt with the cross and leadership. And one of the most important things about that is that um, we do not... Select ourselves. God is the one who, who selects leaders. Even Jesus himself, uh, he's the apostle sent by the Father. He did not appoint himself or choose himself. And um, it's uh, God's choice. And we may not always agree with his choices, but this is the, the choices they are. And they're clear qualifications for leadership, even for the high priesthood of Jesus. They're, they're listed there. Um, and one of the most important, of course, is that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, which is why he became human and was tempted in all points like as we are, so he could be a faithful and merciful high priest for us in heaven. The, um, and we've talked about many other things, but uh, we'll leave it at that. The fourth um, dealt with Jesus uh, as, according to the order of Melchizedek, a high priesthood, uh, how it's different from the Levitical priesthood chapter 7, and uh, that because he lives forever for us, has the power of an endless life, is so much better than earthly priests that were limited, weak, and had to um, pass on their priestly duties to the next generation. Jesus lives forever, can help us always. So this fifth seminar dealing with the cross that connects heaven and earth is a, very, is a topic that I think we as Adventists still, another one that we do not understand, maybe one of the most important ones. It was just one year and two months after I turned from atheism to faith in Jesus and was baptized in the Seventh Adventist Church, my second year at Pacific Union College, sitting in Irwin Hall Chapel, where Ellen White had sometimes preached. And the air was electric with excitement. We all anticipated the presentation that Desmond Ford was going to make on 
1844 as to whether it was a theological milestone or historical necessity. The address was widely reported by the news media and its ripples were felt worldwide. One sentence in particular I remember very well to this day. He said, in 1844, the Lord drew the attention of this people to the torn veil on Calvary. And he made a number of assertions in that speech, which we do not have time to discuss in detail and would not be helpful to repeat. Being a new Christian at the time, I resolved that if I had been deceived, I wanted to know it. And so began my journey of reinvestigation. My study focused on the book of Hebrews because it seemed to me this was where Ford's strongest arguments were found. Whenever we examine a particular view, it is important for us to focus on the weightiest arguments and the strongest evidence rather than picking away at the edges. It doesn't take much effort to assail someone's weak points. And that's important to remember in every controversy, including the present one on women's ordination. It doesn't take much effort to assail weak points. What about the strong points? How do we answer those? If the strongest reasons given are shown to be false, then something valuable and important has been learned. And I am convinced that the evidence for the Adventist position is overwhelming. My purpose here is not to refute the various points which Desmond Ford tried to establish. Many studies over the past 30 plus years have done that, some of which can be found on our website at the Biblical Research Institute. The address is adventistbiblicalresearch.org. So I encourage you to look at the materials that are there. Rather, I would like to get at what seems to be the heart of the matter, the reference to the sanctuary in Hebrews 9.8. This verse is in some respects the crux of the whole chapter because it's too often been studied in isolation from the larger message of Hebrews, which portrays the Christian life as a journey from earth to heaven, the pathway for which has already been blazed by Jesus himself. This pathway, mentioned already in previous chapters, becomes the focus of Hebrews 9. And it's at this point of the book that the picture gets more complicated. After a discussion of the two apartments of the earthly sanctuary and their associated furniture in Hebrews 9, 1-5, the writer describes the ministry of each apartment, culminating with the comment in verse 9 that the sanctuary rituals are symbolic. So let's just... Look quickly at the first five verses. Indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and I agree with that. Um, there are some things we could talk about uh, related to the two apartments, but we won't get into it right now. We hopefully will have time for questions. If you're interested, you can ask about it. So how the symbolism is understood depends on the interpretation of the preceding verse, uh, that is verse 8. And... Um, that has been understood in very different ways. The whole, notice the two different uh, ways in which it's translated. First by the NIV, which uh, understands the pathway as a horizontal one, and I'll explain that later. And the NEB, which understands the pathway as a vertical one. First, horizontal pathway. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. So here, you've got uh, a, a set of uh, comparisons between the holy place and the most holy place. So it's horizontal. You're going, and, and the holy place uh, obstructs entrance in the most holy place. That's the view. For the vertical pathway, in the NAB translates it this way. By this, the Holy Spirit signifies that so long as the earlier tent, which would be the earthly sanctuary, still stands, the way into the sanctuary, Tahagia, that is heavenly sanctuary, remains unrevealed. So therefore, it's the whole earthly sanctuary uh, and its existence and continuance that precludes uh, and obscures entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. So the vertical pathway. See the difference? We'll, we'll talk more about it. In the first column, a spatial metaphor is given a temporal meaning, while in the second, temporal metaphor is given a spatial meaning. Don't worry uh, if you don't quite understand all of what that means. In the first column, the holy place blocks the way into the most holy place while in the second column, the earthly sanctuary blocks the way into the heavenly sanctuary. 
So which option we choose makes a huge difference as to how we understand Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. You see at the bottom, on the left side, if you take the idea that it's really contrasting holy place and most holy place, it means at his ascension, Jesus began a ministry of forgiveness and judgment symbolized by the most holy place right from the beginning, right at his ascension, 31. And if you understand this as a vertical pathway, it means that at his ascension, Jesus began a ministry of forgiveness symbolized by both the holy place and the most holy place. And it doesn't make distinction at this point between them, although there were aspects, of course, that uh, continued on the Day of Atonement, even in the early sanctuary, that um, were part of the, the um, daily or year, uh, you know, the uh, continual service, it, such as the morning evening burnt offering. Um, so, um, according to this view, two eras are being symbolized uh, according to the first view, horizontal pathway. The holy place stands metaphorically for all of the old covenant ceremonies, while the most holy place stands for the new covenant ministry of Christ symbolized by the Day of Atonement. How the Day of Atonement could be implicated with the rest of the old covenant ceremonies as meaningless and yet still somehow epitomize Christ's heavenly ministry is never explained. The New English Bible interprets verse 8, that's the right side, to mean that the way into the heavenly sanctuary with its heavenly ministry is not possible while the earthly sanctuary with its earthly ministry still has validity. So the question is, what ministry did Jesus inaugurate at his ascension? A most holy place ministry, this horizontal pathway, or a holy place ministry, vertical pathway? Deciding which view is correct depends on the interpretation of several Greek words, hagia, skene, and prote. Uh, hagia means holy places, skene, tabernacle, and prote at the first. Uh, so Hagia and Skene, that is uh, sanctuary or holy places and tabernacle, can mean either a single apartment or the sanctuary as a whole. How these two words are understood really hinges on the translation of the third Greek word, that is prote. What does it mean by first? It can be understood either in spatial terms, that is the outer apartment, or in temporal terms, that is the earlier sanctuary. In the Greek Septuagint and other Jewish literature, both Hagia and Skene consistently refer to the sanctuary as a whole. As a whole. It does not distinguish between the two. So, except on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. So the natural way to understand verse 8 is as a reference to the earthly sanctuary in contrast to the heavenly sanctuary, rather than as a contrast between the two apartments. And as we study the context of Hebrews 9, it becomes even clearer, the larger context of the earlier chapters especially. The main point of Hebrews 9 is that the ministry of Christ in heaven is superior, not only to the daily service in the first department, but superior to the yearly service of the Day of Atonement also. Because it's a contrast of two priesthoods. We see already from our, third, uh, from our last seminar uh, the, in chapter 7 that the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood of Levitical uh, service, Levitical priests. And so contrasting the whole with Jesus' heavenly ministry is, makes sense, as well as contrast the whole Old Covenant, as chapter 8 does, with the New Covenant. So that prepares the way in chapter 9 for a contrast of the two sanctuaries, the earthly sanctuary which at the time of Hebrews was written, seems to have the temple still be in operation, and the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus has gone to minister for us. So therefore, it would make sense to understand Hebrews 9.8 as contrasting the earthly ministries of the Levitical priests with the heavenly ministry of Jesus, the Melchizedek priest of the New Covenant period. The message of the verse then is this. As long as the temple continued to dominate the life of Israel, the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and his entrance into the greater and more perfect tabernacle is obscured. We don't see, you know, if you can put yourself back in the time of Israel and, and the focal point that the temple was for all of life in Israel, especially in Jerusalem, it would be very difficult to imagine Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary so far away. 
much easier to see something and people that we can see and touch and, and follow with our eyes rather than by faith. But Hebrews calls us to follow Jesus by faith into the heavenly sanctuary. And that is why Hebrews 9.9 describes the metaphor as being for the present time. That is, before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, when earthly sacrifices and priestly mediation were rivaling the better sacrifice and more excellent ministry of Christ. Two other verses, very important in this connection, are Hebrews 6.19 and 20 and Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. In the first, Jesus is called our forerunner. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the second, Christians are urged to follow the pathway that Christ has newly opened through the veil. Hebrews 10, 19, 20, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Now, despite the prejudicial translation here, you know, of the holiest uh, of the New King James and enters the presence behind the veil, which suggests to some the most holy place, Hebrews is really dealing with Jesus' entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. And, of course, God's presence filled the whole sanctuary, even in the earthly temple. So, the point made by these verses is clear. No longer is there a barrier between earth and heaven. Through his death on the cross and the inauguration of heavenly ministry, Christ has made a pathway for us into the heavenly sanctuary and into the presence of God so that we may approach the throne of grace wherever that throne might be. And I won't get into the details of, of uh, the heavenly geography it's been called, but simply to mention that God is not limited by place. And um, we see that in the Old Testament with Ezekiel and his throne moving through and showing Ezekiel in vision various places. Even Dan uh, Daniel uh, 7, where the judgment scene is pictured, his throne has wheels that seems to be moved and and other thrones are put in place. So God's not some static God sitting forever um, strapped to a throne in one place in heaven. We shouldn't picture God like that. Um, there are many Greek ideas that I think sometimes we have. God's sort of distant and untouchable and un, un, uh, unimaginable. Yes, there are some unimaginable things about God, but there are things that he's revealed for us. And we shouldn't uh, diminish those either. So, according to 10, Hebrews 10.20, it's through Christ's flesh, through his death on the cross, the torn veil, as it's described, that we are enabled to enter. And because Jesus has taken humanity and because he has taken it into the holy places in heaven, that is, humanity exists right there at the throne of God, even on the throne of God, we are enabled to follow him there. That's a thought that we should dwell on, I think, at length. It's with this idea, more than any other, that Hebrews shows how unlike the Day of Atonement, the work of Jesus really is. Only the high priest, that is the Day of Atonement in the earthly sanctuary, only the high priest in the earthly sanctuary, in the, in the earthly temple, could enter the sanctuary and the most holy place of the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. No one else was permitted. But, and the pathway was forbidden, was closed. There were signs warning also of getting too close. But Jesus has made the pathway open to all who are willing to follow him there. So this Day of Atonement ministry that he has begun since 1844 is very different from the Day of Atonement ministry in the earthly sanctuary and even the daily ministry, of course, because the only those who, could, who were qualified to enter and offer sacrifice could even approach into the holy place, uh, sorry, the outer court, and not into the holy place at all. Whereas at his ascension, Jesus has already opened the way into the sanctuary as a whole for us, into the presence of God. So where does this pathway end? 
While it may seem obvious at this point, it's helpful to emphasize that according to Hebrews, the goal of our journey is upward it's, and forward. It's not backward. At the cross, Jesus made the all-sufficient perfect sacrifice. Yes. At the cross, he made purification for sins. He set aside sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is essential for us. The cross is the great turning point at the consummation of the ages, but it is not the end of the journey. To the contrary, it is where the journey begins. If we begin at the end and end at the beginning, where have we gone? Nowhere. It's not a journey. But Hebrews describes a very real journey, a journey upward to the heavenly sanctuary by faith now and forward to the heavenly city in a little while, Hebrews 11.37. In a little while, he that will come will not tarry. In terms of a pathway, having the right destination is crucial. I was reminded of this when I was in Germany at a conference a few years ago. I flew into Stuttgart, proceeded to the train station, ordered a ticket for my destination, and I told the Asian German that I wanted to buy a ticket to Rottenburg. He paused for a moment, seemed a little perplexed and a little confused, finally gave me the ticket and took my money. I boarded the train, settled in for a comfortable journey to my destination, but unfortunately, it was not until the train began moving that I actually looked at my ticket. And when I did, I realized that there had been a dreadful mistake. Printed clearly on the ticket was my destination, Rotenburg not Rottenberg, and it's just a difference of one letter in German. So um, the ticket agent sized me up as a foreigner, it seems, decided I wanted to visit the city well-known to tourists. Thanks to German efficiency, the conductor, with his little handheld device, though, was able to find the most efficient way to reroute me and print out a ticket, give me the difference in fare, and help me uh, uh, know exactly where to get off to make the appropriate transfer. Knowing where our pathway ends is really important if we hope to get there. The cross is the indispensable beginning, but it is still and forever only the beginning. Hebrews urges us to see the Jesus who endured the cross, not to the Jesus on the cross, because he is no longer there. Sometimes as Christians, we're like the women who went to Jesus' tomb. They were looking for the right person, but they were looking in the wrong place. The angel said, he is not here. Go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Mark 16, 6 and 7. For the first disciples too, the cross and the empty tomb were but the beginning of the journey. Angels directed their attention forward and upward. In a similar way, Hebrews directs our attention beyond the earth to heaven, beyond Jerusalem to the heavenly city and the heavenly country. But Hebrews 9 tells us even more. We learn that from a first century perspective, Jesus' work in the heavenly sanctuary is not yet about judgment. Paul may not pinpoint the exact time when the judgment begins, but he does describe its timing in a relative way. Hebrews 9 moves from the sacrifice to forgiveness through the application of blood in verse 22, and then to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, verse 23, with the better sacrifice of Christ, verses 25 and 26, the judgment, verse 27, and second coming, verse 28. So we see a relative order. In other words, the judgment of human beings did not take place at the cross. The judgment will happen in relation to the second coming of Christ, as the fall festivals of the Jewish calendar indicate, as we looked at also in seminar number four. So it's significant that Hebrews 9.28 calls Christ's return his second coming. It's the only place in the New Testament, actually, it's called his second coming. The order is important. First coming should not be confused with second coming. The judgment should not be confused with the cross. Even Jesus himself, of course, in John 12 said, I'm Judge no one. The one. There's one that judges. The word I have spoken, the same will judge him 
at the last day, on the last day, referring, of course, to this time of judgment. The New Testament does talk about a judgment at the cross, but it was a judgment of this world in the sense of a judgment on sin and a judgment on the prince of this world because the devil is the author of sin. And a judgment of the prince of this world is, is, means that we now have dominion back away from the devil. He is one, Jesus has won that battle and restored earth to its rightful place within God's kingdom. The cross forever planted a different kingdom here than the one Satan has tried to set up. Yes, there's a rivalry now between the kingdoms, but the kingdom of God is here on earth, established. The first advent does not concern the judgment of human beings. The first advent was a judgment on the devil and on sin that he originated. That is why, according to Hebrews 9, 27, 28, the second advent is not about sin, but about judgment, final salvation, and the heavenly reward for those who eagerly wait for him. Sin has already been judged and condemned forever. So let's move to the conclusion. Hopefully we'll have some time for questions. First of all, Jesus, as our forerunner, has blazed a pathway for us from earth to heaven so that we can already follow him through the veil into the very presence of God. A very large part of the reason why he can be our high priest is his kinship to us. He is the representative human being before the Father. Because he shares our flesh and blood, through his bodily presence there, our prayers of faith can follow him right into the heavenly sanctuary. We also receive forgiveness, which is what the pouring of the blood beneath the altar and the application of the blood in the sanctuary ritual symbolized. Faith is the essential element. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. As we have seen in seminar number two, it was a failure of faith that kept Israel from entering God's rest. And as Hebrews 11 makes abundantly clear, it is only through faith that anyone will ultimately receive what God has promised. Jesus has opened the way. It is left with us whether or not we will, through faith, follow the pathway he has opened up for us. Three, our entering heaven through faith now prepares us for translation so that we can go with him to heaven at his second coming. Since the cross is just the beginning of the race, could it be that we have not yet reached the finish line because we're still looking backward to where Jesus was instead of looking upward to where Jesus is. As we saw earlier, seminar number four, the Day of Atonement points forward to a period of judgment beginning in 1844 when Jesus closed the door to the holy place and opened the door to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Revelation 3, 7, and 8 refers to that he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Before, hold, I have left before you an open door and no one can shut it. That open door is the open door in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary since 1844. Revelation 11:19 also refers to this time. It pictures the most holy place being opened in heaven, revealing the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, it predicts that during this end time day of atonement, the law of God and the continuing validity of the Sabbath will be emphasized. We are living at the most crucial time in Earth's history. From early writings, page 42 and 43, comes this neglected statement. Since Jesus has opened the door into the most holy place, which contains the ark, the commandments have been shining out to God's people and they are being tested on the Sabbath question. The enemies of the present truth have been trying to open the door of the holy place that Jesus has shut and to close the door of the most holy place, which he opened in 1844. 
Satan is now using every device in this sealing time to keep the minds of God's people from the present truth and to cause them to waver. Could have been written today. It's more, more pertinent today than at any previous time, including when it was written. Most importantly, only once we recognize that Jesus, through the cross, has reconnected the earth with heaven and is soon to finish his Day of Atonement ministry, will we be motivated to enter this final work by faith, receive the latter rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and proclaim the Sabbath more fully. Ellen White saw the result. She said, early writings, pages 93, 95, this enraged the churches and nominal Adventists. And at this time, God's chosen all saw clearly that we had the truth, and they came out and endured the persecution with us. Referring to, of course, the great call out of Babylon, come out of her, my people. Many will join and come to stand with us and receive the seal of God. I believe the fulfillment of this prophecy has already begun. Already some professed or nominal Adventists, whether they realize it or not, have imbibed the flawed gospel of Protestant churches that rejected the sanctuary message. In fact, it was that flawed gospel that led them to reject the sanctuary message. It was that flawed gospel that led the professor of PUC that I referred to at the beginning to reject the sanctuary message. And it is that flawed gospel that continues to lead people to reject the sanctuary message. The result, of course, is the same. They're trying to shut the door of the most holy place and reopen the door into the holy place. But I'm thankful that that's not possible. That we have a God who is never taken by surprise and who, um, who has not left his church into the hands of men, as we saw in a previous seminar. That Jesus is ministering for us and no one is able to shut that door until he shuts it himself and probation closes. The message of Hebrews is most of all a message of salvation. And for us at the verge of eternity, it is the most important message because of the message of final salvation, of final hope. For us who live in the anti-typical day of atonement, it is a message of proclaiming the Sabbath more fully, of entering into that experience that we referred to in seminar number two, of really resting in the Sabbath. It is a message of the judgment, which is good news because it means that this world of sin and suffering is almost over. I don't want to live here any, a day longer than necessary. And I'm sure you agree with me. It is also a message of final salvation because once that door is shut, and no one can open it. Once the probation is closed, the proclamation will go forth. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Not because of some miracle um, in an instant, but because of a miracle of a lifetime of God's work in our hearts. Above all, the book of Hebrews is a message of the Jesus of this Sabbath, of this judgment, of this final salvation. By looking to him, following the pathway he has opened as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the one who has traveled every step of the way that we are asked to follow. He doesn't ask us to go where he has not already led the way. He doesn't push us and say, you go ahead, I'll lead from behind. No. He goes ahead of us. He's paved the pathway for us. He's proved that it's not impossible. And in fact, that it's eminently possible, but only through his grace. We will not do it without him. But he will not let us alone or leave us alone to go it alone without him. He will be with us even in the time of trouble, even after the door of probation is shut, even after the spirit is withdrawn from the world. It's never withdrawn from his people. 
We're with him forever. By looking to Jesus, following the pathway he has opened as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the promise remains sure that we and those we win for him will soon receive that something better prepared for us by God. Notice how Hebrews 10 closes. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which holds great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that having done the will of God, you may obtain the promise. For yet a very little while, the coming one shall come and will not tarry, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the possession of their soul. May we all have that experience. Well, we've covered a lot in these five seminars. Question. Yes, yes. Uh, so the comment has to do with questions on doctrine. And in the 1950s, when uh, we were approached by evangelicals and tried to explain our faith in their terms, not in our terms, not in biblical terms, but in terms of systematic theology, and it actually changed our theology to a significant extent that was not really recognized uh, by very many. There were, it was recognized by some notably uh, M.L. Andreessen, who has been, I think, unfairly maligned, a good book that was published some years ago, Without Fear or Favor, about his um, life. That, um, but we are now, I think, experiencing many of those consequences. And this statement by Ellen White is definitely uh, more relevant now than when she wrote it or any previous time. So thank you for your comment. Question, yes. New King James Version is used throughout the presentations. Another question, yes. Yes, yeah, Paul wrote Hebrews, yes, about 65 AD, sometime shortly before his martyrdom. Yes, yes, and he, he prepares his people at the time they need it, right? So Hebrews was written as, I think, a last warning, a last appeal, not only to Christians who were um, thinking about giving up their faith, as this suggests, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, but to those who had not yet accepted Jesus at all, ever, and uh, showing his better ministry, and, and there's no need to hold on to uh, an old covenant ministry that's passing away and soon to be destroyed, literally, in just a few years. Question here. Yeah, that's Ellen White's statement in early writings, uh, that after uh, we are, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is given, the Sabbath will be proclaimed more fully. Well, yeah, that's a good question as far as the exact. Let's look at the, the um, exact statement again. Um, it is in early writings, 93 to 95. No, it's the earlier one. Um, in 42, yes, since Jesus opened the door in the most holy place, which contains the ark, so that's since, of course, 1844, the commandments have been shining out to God's people, and they're being tested on the Sabbath question. Um, 
Well, let's see. Where it's not the slide. Is this slide just before this? Okay. Yes, but I don't have the, the actual statement there, do I? Um, I'll have to look at the context some more, but I believe it's in, in early writings. Um, sorry, I don't have the full statement with me. Good question. But it is, uh, I, it is connected, it seems to me, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in, in the context and uh, proclaiming the Sabbath more fully. But how do we proclaim the Sabbath more fully? It is through understanding the Sabbath more fully, through experiencing the Sabbath more fully, through entering into the rest more fully that Jesus has prepared for us. And so unless it's through this um, understanding and experience ourselves of the Sabbath more fully, we will not proclaim the Sabbath more fully. That's the point. Israel didn't do it. Uh, wandering the wilderness, they, they really didn't find the rest. They didn't have the faith and confidence. They had unbelief and, and doubt. And that is, our, I think, our reason here for our not entering into the rest and, and proclaiming the Sabbath more fully. That's the main point. And so hopefully that, that was clear. Yes? The, with the point you were making about the, whether it's horizontal or vertical, looking mm-hmm. at it between the apartments or the two sanctuaries, uh, how would you, when you look at the first part of Hebrews 9, it looks like it's comparing the holy and the most holy. It talks a lot about the different apartments. So... How would you answer someone that's questioning whether it's horizontal based on those first few verses? Well, if you look at, so we, the verses we didn't look at in detail, um, the first five verses, we just read them. It goes through the, the various um, articles of furniture. And uh, I think that the problem is for some that they don't understand the, the statement with regard to the altar of incense. And uh, if you look at uh, Hebrews 9, verse 4, well, verse 3, after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest veil, it's because of the translation. Um, the, the word tabernacle is skene, and it could refer, as I said, either to the whole sanctuary or to a single apartment. So this is your question. Um, here it's, um, it's referring to, uh, you know, it, it, it says it's called Hagia. So it's actually referring to the whole sanctuary in a way um, because it includes the golden censer, which we know was in the first apartment. And it doesn't say it was located within the second apartment of the sanctuary. It says that... Uh, it says which had or which, to which belonged would be a better translation of the Greek, to which belonged the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the, the reason the, the censer was there before the veil into the uh, most holy place is that the presence of God extended over into the holy place. It wasn't just filling the most holy place. Sometimes we get that idea. But the, as I said, the presence of God filled both apartments. And therefore, the incense was needed already in the holy place. Even, and the reason it was needed is because the presence of God in the most holy place was really filling the whole sanctuary. And uh, so needed to veil God's presence throughout the year, not only on the Day of Atonement, not only when the high priest went first into the most holy place, and then the holy place to cleanse the holy place, and then the outer court to cleanse the altar, and so on. Um, it's the reverse order as during the, the continual service of the year. And so um, the, really the altar of, of incense and the golden censer um, deals with the whole sanctuary. And that's why Hagia applies to the, to the whole sanctuary. But when he uh, wants to refer to the... Uh, to the second apartment, he uses the term hagia hagion, and that's um, that's the uh, word that's used here. In it's the only time that it's used in the whole chapter. Elsewhere, for example, in um, verse one, refers just to the sanctuary. Um, uses hagion 
And then in verse 2, uses Hagia. And only in verse 3, it's referring to the most holy place, Hagia Hagion. But as I said, because of the, the previous verses, uh, it also encompasses the whole sanctuary as terms of the presence of God and the placement of the altar of incense. Good question. Yes, question here. He was nine? Hebrews 9, verse 7. Well, it depends because you see uh, in verse 6, it says, when things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year not without blood. Yes, so clearly it refers to the first, as I said, Skena here in this case refers to the first apartment and the second apartment. Yes. That's right. And the first, uh, verse 6, would be uh, the, year, uh, the uh, daily uh, service. Right. And then verse 8, the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest uh, again, here the word is hagia. It's not hagia hagion, as in verse three. So, in other words, uh, when it's uh, even though it's translated that way in the uh, you know in the uh, King James version, verse eight is translated the same way as in verse three, holiest of all. The words in Greek are not the same. In verse three, it's hagia hagion. It means holy of holies, literally translated. Hagia hagion, holy of holies. Hagia means holy. Of Hagion means of the holies. So it's the holiest place of all. It, most holy place, we would say. But in, here in verse 8, it's simply Hagia, which is actually the word that was used in verse 2 for the first apartment. So the question is, does it refer to the whole sanctuary or does it refer to the first apartment or the second apartment? And my, uh, my conclusion is that it refers to the whole sanctuary. Because in verses 1 through 5, he's talking about the whole sanctuary. Yes, he talks about the individual apartments, but the whole sanctuary. It's geography. It's furniture. In verses 6 and 7, he's talking about the ministry, yes, of each individual apartment, but together the whole sanctuary ministry of the earthly service. So in verse 8, it's referring again to the whole ministry, to the whole sanctuary, and contrasting it with heaven and heavenly ministry of Jesus. Okay? Good. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, sometimes translations make it easier and sometimes they make it harder. Unfortunately, in this case, many of the translations, including the NIV that I mentioned here in the lecture, uh, the seminar was, it doesn't make it easy to understand. It makes it harder to understand. That's why it's good to compare translations. It's good to study Greek, but if you don't know Greek, compare translations and choose uh, the more word-for-word -word translations. Normally, the New King James Version, the, the uh, English Standard Version, New American Standard Bible, these word-for-word -word translations, when you compare them, you'll be able to see clearly the meaning. You quoted on the slide from the NIV on one side and the NAV on the other side. Yes. Uh, the King James, New King James, NASB, NIV, all of them look at it horizontally. Are there any others that look at it vertically like the NAV? Um, that's a good question. So do any uh, other translations besides the New English Bible look at as a vertical understanding? And um, I would need to look at, at that question. I, I haven't actually researched every single version on this topic. But um, as was mentioned, um, many churches do not understand our sanctuary message. Uh, evangelical theology really is contrary to our sanctuary message and really um, hostile to our sanctuary message. This is why they, we were approached in the 1950s, really, uh, because um, our message was, in a way, hostile to them, and their message is hostile to us. Because after all, if we believe we're the remnant of Bible prophecy, and those outside who are rejecting it are Babylon, it's difficult to find a lot of common ground there. Um, and we shouldn't expect to find it necessarily. 
we need to be, uh, recognize that sometimes then the translations will be biased in this way. And I would say increasingly they are biased. Even if you compare the NIV translation, for example, of 1984 with the New International Version translation of 2011, you'll find some significant changes, including um, changes with regard to um, gender neutral uh, wording, more gender neutral wording. And if you look in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see some interesting differences between the two editions of the New International Version. So these translations, uh, as they become more free, more as the, the, the euphemistic term is used, dynamic, uh, they become more dynamically possible for translators to um, guide what the text is saying, rather than the word-for-word -word translations, which leave it up more to the reader to decide and understand the text for themselves. It's really a move away from the traditional Protestant understanding. Well, thank you for your questions. It's already five minutes over time. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Father, thank you for the time that we've had this morning. It's gone by very quickly. Bless us as we continue to seek you, to understand you and follow uh, your path that, you've, uh, that Jesus has made for us into your presence. Go with us throughout this day, and as we uh, go out and minister and, and reach out today, bless our efforts, bless those we come in contact with, and may, as we come into your Sabbath time this evening, uh, enter that rest really fully as you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.